Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. I think it's terrific that you're finding time to spend with us, but I think we're making it worth your while. The Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giraud, is going to be my guest. This is an exclusive interview with Money Talks. And if you care how our money is managed, how it's spent, this is the guy to talk to. I mean, I love these people. They are nonpartisan. All they are there for is to help parliamentarians make better decisions and help Canadians make better decisions. You're going to love this interview. I've got to ask him, by the way, right up front, why does he say or ask whether the federal government is out of control with spending? Why do they ask if it's broken? I'll ask him those things. He's coming up shortly. Ozzy Jurek on the massive changes happening. Now, it's happening out in British Columbia in individual neighborhoods, but the point is, All jurisdictions look at other jurisdictions to see what they're doing on the housing front. Well, this is a new one, and I say it's going to change people's neighborhoods. And as we've said on Money Talks, once that happens, people will start paying attention. I also got Victor Adair, sea change from the Federal Reserve that the market picked up on this week. I'll get more details. Plus, Rob Levy's going to join me talking about the wonderful world of gold. But in this case, we're also talking about a brand new contest we have. If you buy tickets to the World Outlook Conference in December, you get entered for a draw for a one ounce gold coin. Now that's economics at its best because economics is a study of incentives. Well, our incentive to buying a ticket, hey, you'll get in a draw, you could win a one ounce gold coin. My question is, it's worth $2,800 today. How much will it be worth in the future? That's one of the themes on Money Talks. Anyways, looking forward to that. We've got a great quote of the week, got a good goofy award, and a shocking stat. It's about Canadian taxpayers' money. And I'm telling you, the government response to some highly questionable dealings is, in fact, going to shock you. But first, let me court a little controversy today. I learned a long time ago that it's never popular to point out that the emperor has no clothes. In this age of virtue signaling, I think where political social status are based on really what people say, not what they do, I'm going to be even less popular for pointing out how the words absolutely don't match the actions. Take, for example, we got an estimated, what, 70,000 people gathering in Dubai right now for COP28. I mean, it's going to be a record carbon footprint. Think about the jet fuel emissions. And they're there to talk about reducing emissions? Well, give me a break. That's just one example among so many. But I think there's a better one that I want to bring to your attention in Canada. And it highlights the consequences of our focus constantly on saying the right thing, on the virtue signaling versus taking meaningful action. I mean, if the measure of concern around climate change is talk, then come on, we can make a really good case that Canada leads the list at least on the short list with Germany, of caring the most about climate change. And I don't think there's many world leaders who are going to challenge the prime minister for top spot. I think it's fair to say that he built his career. Well, of course, his father's name helped, but he built his career on constant talk about the dangers of climate change. And as I said, he had a heck of a lot of company in the media who nodded their heads every time. It seems like every report, every study, every proclamation of the climate emergency could make headlines, cover stories, documentaries. I mean, the media was only too happy to cover virtually every utterance of Miss Climate Change Armageddon herself, Greta Thunberg. That's why I find it so noteworthy that when the liberal appointed commissioner, so he's liberal appointed, Commissioner of the Environment, Jerry DeMarco, released his most recent report that finds that Canada has, in his words, in quotes, made no progress in reducing emissions. 
No progress under the Trudeau government and the Harper government before that. But why didn't that make headlines? I, I doubt you heard that in the news. I mean, it got some brief mentions, I know, but they didn't last beyond the 24-hour news cycle. Didn't lead the news. And there were a couple of commentaries. But come on, we've been told that climate change is the biggest emergency of our time. And we have spent tens of billions of dollars. Massive economic opportunities, you know, well, we cast them aside. Why in the name of climate change? You know, we don't want that oil and gas stuff. We don't want those pipelines, that kind of thing. And we're making no progress, though? No progress in addressing emission reductions? How come that is not headline news? By the way, neither did the commissioner's last report, and that was November of 221, that found that Canada had the worst record in the G7 when it came to emission reductions. Canada is the only G7 country whose emissions actually have gone up since 1990. Where are the climate ad- activists? Why aren't they outraged? Now, let me quickly acknowledge there's some people who would out there says, who cares? It doesn't matter. Canada produces only 1.6% of global emissions. So we don't need to be concerned that we're not performing. But that's not my point. The commissioner's report is a cautionary tale about concentrating on virtue signaling, concentrating on what people say versus practical, workable solutions. Come on, dead last in the G7? No meaningful reductions since the prime minister took office? I mean, that should have been news, but it also should be a cautionary tale. Starting with the overly politicized goals that carry no accountability, including primary commitment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 40% below 2005 levels, which the environment minister, or rather environment commissioner report, concluded is rooted in overly optimistic assumptions. I think that's better known as horse manure. They also found, in quotes, the measures most critical for reducing emissions hadn't been identified or prioritized. Are you kidding me? The measures most critical for actually accomplishing the goal of reducing emissions had not been identified or prioritized. But what had happened is lots of talk. I mean, the list in that report just goes on and on. But they're saying, basically, since 2016, we got the government of Canada, bringing forward a hundred policy measures to combat climate change. And they still don't know what regulations and measures are effective, which ones aren't. I mean, the environment minister's report found that some of the measures in the 2030 plan don't even have a timetable for when they're going to be implemented. And there were no targets for 95% of the measures, but we talk a good game. I mean, that's the point that I want to make though that this approach, this virtue signaling, has real problems. And you can see it in so many other areas. I I think of things like clean drinking water and native reserves, or the lack of family doctors, to record wait times in healthcare, lack of affordable housing. Yeah, we've all talked a good game about those. Look at the results. At some point, we're going to understand that saying the right things is a self-indulgent, hollow exercise if it's not accompanied by a practical, realistic action plan. And it's up to us to demand one. And oh yeah, one last thing. I might forget, really unpopular. If the climate crowd is not angry enough at me for pointing out the problems or the lack of uh, results when it comes to emission resistance, consider the laughable criticisms that they make toward conservatives because they say they don't have an effective climate plan if reducing emissions is the goal. 
I'm saying that the last eight years clearly demonstrate that neither do the liberals or NDP. Ouch. I can't believe I said that. I'm just inviting problems. That's my point, though. This approach, this overemphasis on virtue signaling, on saying the right thing, has consequences. We're about to greet many of them, and they're not pleasant. Hey, just a reminder, by the way, of course, we have the World Outlook Conference. Of course, you can tune in to mikesmoneytalks.ca, and that's where you get tickets for the World Outlook. But we got a big new contest coming. I'll tell you, tell you about that because we've got Rob Levy also joining us about the big record move in gold. Well, a very positive five weeks in a row up move in gold over the $2,000 mark. Plus, stay with me. I've got the parliamentary budget officer next. Has the government lost control of spending? Well, I'll ask him. The Parliamentary Budget Office, I think, is the rarest of creatures in Ottawa because it's completely nonpartisan, responsible uh, for providing economic and financial analysis uh, to Parliament for the purposes of raising, I guess, the quality of parliamentary debate. It certainly is helpful to the public to find out what's going on. I mean, we can certainly all weigh in on how transparent the government has been. But I'll tell you, without the Parliamentary Budget Office, I think most of us would be far more in the dark. And the head of the Parliamentary Budget Office is Isherou, as I call him, the taxpayer's best friend. He joins me right now. Eve, thanks for taking the time for us. But as I say, yeah, I, I can't say enough about the work you guys put out and you know your whole team does put out that really does illuminate what's going on uh, whether it's uh, reviewing a project a major one like the Stellantis um, the Stellantis Volkswagen you know battery it's thank goodness we got a second set of eyes going in there just for the taxpayers sake and as you say your role is to help parliamentarians understand exactly what they're doing uh, during elections, quickly, uh, I'll just say uh, the parties actually present you with some of their platforms and you guys have a look at it and say, well, this is actually what I think it's going to cost mm-hmm. at that point. So, uh, again, thank you. I want to start right now. As it, and it just happened this week. Uh, Christia Freeling comes out and says, we're not going to give you the research. We're not going to release the research behind our decision to have the GST rebate. And... Uh, you know, I'll just say that's, you know, wow, okay. But that's not, that's one of many, many examples. And so I want to know, I mean, I remember when you, you went back, it's not, it's not long ago, but you said there was a problem with transparency. I think it was just in May uh, when you wanted the terms of that multi-billion dollar subsidy agreement with Volkswagen and Stellantis. And uh, again, uh, it didn't seem like it was forthcoming. I mean, how are we doing in terms of that kind of transparency? Well, uh, since I was appointed, I've seen a change in the government's take uh, or collaboration with my office. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, Generally speaking, when I need information, I ask for it, and I get it. It may take a while sometimes. It takes them a couple of weeks to go through the, through the approval process. Generally speaking, I get what I need to do my work. The big exception is taxpayer information. I never need individual taxpayer information, but sometimes when I need to estimate the cost of certain measures, for example, Mr. Singh has a, a motion in the, in the House where big corporations that have uh, disproportionate pay for their CEOs would be forced to pay a, a surtax. Well, it's very difficult to get in, information from the CRA on these corporations because there's relatively few of them, and they, they are worried that by the, giving me that information, I could figure out 
which corporations are included in that bundle of 100 or 150 mm -hmm. where the, uh, the surtax would apply. So these are like specific issues I'm faced with when getting access to information. But generally speaking, I get a good collaboration. So the Department of Finance and the Department of National Defense are usually very good at providing me and my office with information. But I gather it's a whole different issues for parliamentarians and for journalists and the media in general. Like I often have discussions with journalists and they are telling me the access to information process is totally gummed up. Well, I, I'm going back to, I think it was around this time last year, it was in December, uh, that you were talking about that challenge, you know, uh, that you rated Canada one of the worst in concealing federal books from taxpayer scrutiny. And I'm wondering, have we made much improvement there? Does that, do they care when you make a statement like that? I, I, some people do care, but probably not enough of them care to make a significant difference. Um, for example, the public accounts. So that's, in a, in a nutshell, that's how much the government has spent in a given year, so it's looking backwards. Uh, the fiscal years of governments in the country, including that of the federal government, that ends on March 31st of each year. So normally you'd expect a big place like the Government of Canada to be in a position to release their public accounts a couple of months after the end of the fiscal year. But uh, we've seen the public accounts being tabled very late in the fall, so November, sometimes even early December, this year, it was late October, if my memory serves me well. So still several, several months after the end of the fiscal year. Mm -hmm. But the current fiscal year started April 1st. So parliamentarians are in a position where they have been asked to vote on funding government operations in March, in April, in May, and June. But they have no idea how the government fared during the previous fiscal year. They don't know if there was yeah. a bigger deficit than expected, and they don't know how individual departments spent, how much they lapsed, how much they actually spent. So, and it's year after year after year. Parliamentarians are asked, vote for these hundreds of billions of dollars to make government work. But nah, we'll tell you how much we did, how well or not we did several months later. So, there's a big lag in that, and it's not there. Not that there's a silver bullet to that, but the IMF, for example, the International Monetary Fund, suggests that within six months of the end of a fiscal year, you should be tabling your public accounts. Well, within, within that same thing, and again, it was about a year ago, uh, like almost literally a year ago, uh, the Department of Finance you know, wasn't cooperating. There was like a $14.2 billion in unidentified spending that was in its, that year's fall economic statement, and it, hadn't, it didn't give any details whatsoever. And I think that's where it drives sort of taxpayers nuts. Like, where the he that's a lot of money. Where the heck is it going? And, uh, you know, it didn't seem like much cooperation was forthcoming there. No, because in good part, it was probably, um, well, we can only make uh, assumptions as to what it was. It was probably mm -hmm. cabinet decisions that they were anticipating but had not yet been made or had been made but not yet made public. Yes. So mm -hmm. they had to account for that somehow, and they lumped that together with maybe lawsuits that were pending for which there were a, a resolution was expected in the not-so-distant future. So there are good reasons to not reveal everything. For example, you don't want to reveal 
to the plaintiffs in the lawsuit how much you have set aside yes. to, to make a settlement with them. Uh, but in other instances, it, it's a bit surprising to see that you're not disclosing information that should be disclosed and that you're not that you're having so much money in a set aside for future decisions or lawsuits and, and so on. I'll give you another example. In the latest public accounts, there was one instance at the Public Health Agency of Canada for one contract which uh, obligations had not been fulfilled, $150 million that the government wrote off. Mm-hmm. And journalists picked up on that and they tried to get information only to be told, can't disclose, it's one contract that was not fulfilled, we lost the money, we had made a payment, we never saw the goods or services that we paid for. So journalists had to repeatedly ask for the government to finally admit that it was a contract with a company uh, that produced vaccines that went bust during the Mm -hmm. pandemic. Totally explainable. But why are you just not saying it at the beginning when you're asked a question first? There's no real reason to hide that. And it's $150 It's not pocket change. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's a few examples of that when we go back. Uh, I'm not saying in terms of they're not releasing the details, but there were certainly the government seems very reluctant to do sort of an independent inquiry that are happening in so many other countries about the pandemic response to see what did we learn? What if it happens again? All of those things. But it's it's at this point, we have not had one. And as I say, many other countries are are having that with the goal to learn some lessons, you know, and I would think when you're talking about contracts for $150 million, other contracts were, were let to without, you know, sole source contracts, all of that, there was stuff to talk, there is stuff to talk about. But uh, I, kind of interesting, just, you know, I, I was talking to uh, a senior liberal, uh, been a successful politician this past week. And his question echoed something that you wrote, uh, you know, back in April, and that is, he's wondering, has has really the government lost control of its spending when you look at the growth in in, uh, employment all of those things are we getting the results for that but uh, his response and it just as i say it twinged right away i said well i I remember when the parliamentary budget officer was kind of wondering about that have we lost control of our spending that's a very good question (laughs) okay one one would have to assume that the government ever had control of spending Mm. So, and there are people who say probably not because the initial promise was to have small deficits of around $10 billion. There were not that many small deficits of $10 billion since the election of this government initially in 2015. So, or the other point of view is, have they lost control? Maybe that's part of the plan. Maybe they they didn't lose control to the extent that it is what the government really wants to achieve. Not to say that they want to spend necessarily like big time, but they are delivering on what is or are priorities for them. Mm -hmm. And maybe the deficit is just the consequence of that. So for, for the government, maybe it's, there's no problem there because the deficit is going Mm -hmm. down compared to pandemic level. So uh, I'm not sure that anybody in the government sees the state of public finances as a problem necessarily. Well, it certainly wasn't the case when so many people uh, coming out of private sector economists, analysts saying you need a fiscal anchor. 
you know, mm-hmm. give us an idea what your, your was. And I think they did that in March. Uh, and gosh, it was six weeks later, they broke it. And I remember, I forget what Chris, uh, Finance Minister Freeland actually said. It was something like, this is our line in the sand, that kind of thing. And it literally took about six weeks to, well, maybe that's not that clear a line in the sand. Yeah, and fiscal anchors seem to be flexible. I, yeah. I remember early in the pandemic months, the focus was pretty much on the debt service ratio. So the proportion of revenues, federal mm-hmm. government revenues that go to servicing the cost, the, the debt, sorry, so it was very low interest rates at record lows. We can spend. Then when that ratio started going up as interest rates rose, then the fiscal anchor or the discourse at least shifted towards declining debt to GDP ratio. And that was the fiscal anchor. And when that started going up too, then we shifted to lower, like decreasing debt to GDP ratio over time. And then in the last fall economic statement, a new fiscal anchor, deficits that are less than 1% of GDP, but only starting in 26-27. That's after the next fixed date election. So when you have a fiscal anchor that moves over time, it, it, I think it erodes the credibility of said mm-hmm. fiscal anchor. Well, it, it certainly doesn't. This is, these are my words, by the way. It doesn't seem to be a priority. You know, I, I, I can name other things that are clearly, if you measure by what is said and how often it's said, that uh, other issues like climate change are a bigger priority uh, than certainly federal finances there. But I mean, I think what Canadians should be very aware of is, is the size of the federal government has grown. I mean, that also seems to be a political stance. So I'm not going to ask you to comment on whether that's a good idea or not, but it sure seems clear that the size of the government has exploded. Oh, yeah. Clearly, we've seen that uh, with government expenditures, the size of the public service as well, the number of of employees in the federal public service, which has grown consistently. There were probably very valid reasons, temporary reasons for that during the pandemic. But once the pandemic is over, one would expect the number of employees in the federal public service to at least stabilize, if not decrease. Again, that's not happening. So it probably speaks to the priorities of the government to have a more important presence of the federal government in the economy and in society. And I think that's that's the choice before Canadians. And and, and again, you're not commenting on whether that's a good idea or not, but uh, really I think Canadians have to be aware is uh, clearly the federal government has uh, a vision of a much more intrusive, a much more interventionist federal government. I've got a, a zillion examples of that and, uh, versus opponents who don't want to see a much bigger federal government. So, I mean, I think that's just lays it out on the table. But I think one thing that Canadians, uh, regardless where you stand on that, I would think it's uh, pretty reasonable to say, if we're sp- spending more money, then we should be getting better results. And boy, I was looking at that report again just this week that you put out in May, the Parliamentary Budget Office, talking about cabinet really increasing, federal liberal government increasing money on Indigenous affairs and there didn't seem to be much measurable improvement in the actual services. No, when we, we looked at the performance indicators uh, from the two departments that primarily deal with Indigenous and Canadians, mm-hmm. uh, Indigenous services and Crown, Crown Indigenous relations, uh, the performance indicators of both departments are not met about half of the time. So, And it's performance targets that they themselves choose performance indicators that choose and the targets that department officials choose themselves. So 
They set their own performance indicators and targets, and yet they're unable to meet them despite the significant increase in spending in these two departments. So it's really surprising to see that so much money is being is being spent not only on the on indigenous services but generally speaking and a significant portion of performance indicators and targets that officials themselves choose are not being met and that's that's seen across government not every department there are departments that are better than others but generally speaking you have less than than a two-thirds of performance indicators that are met last time we checked 54% of indicators were met for the last round of performance indicators that were tabled at the end of October or early November. Uh, so that's, if, if one is charitable, you could say 60%, depending on how you mm-hmm. measure, measure that, but that still leaves at least 40% of targets that are not met. Well, it's funny. There's a couple of things that come. I, I, you wouldn't have heard the opening comment today, but it was on the Environment Commissioner's report that Canada had shown zero progress uh, since 2015 under the Trudeau government on emissions reductions. And that was about the same what the Harper government did, but they didn't talk about it as much. You know, uh, his report last year said we were the worst performer in the G7. I mean, that's another example is you know, a lot of money spent. What did we get in re- return for it? You know, uh, and, and by the way, what you're saying, we just saw the BC ferries, uh, which has been really had a troublesome uh, last year or two with cancellations and unreliability, that kind of thing. And we get another report saying, well, one of the things they did is exactly what you're alluding to, which is all you have to do if you want to pass, just get lower targets. You know, if you want a good grade, just change the grading. And they clearly had done that immediately. I thought of your report coming out in May that said that's what they're doing. And then look at, I mean, come on, you've got 20 plus years in the public sector, more than that. But uh, you said it wasn't a shock to you in that. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Uh, I, and I think that's all that Canadians want. They, you know, we can have a debate about how much, how much we pay in tax, where it goes. But I hope there's not a debate that we all hope it's spent effectively and efficiently, that we actually are getting something uh, in return. And, uh, you know, that's why it's so ironic that uh, your report last, well, it was March 222, I think. Uh, when you talked about the Canada Revenue Agency, it's one of the most expensive tax collectors in the world. But man, they didn't have uh, you know commensurate results with that. Yeah, uh, the based on the results that they themselves indicate to other tax agencies. So it was, I think it was OECD data that we used. The CRA is average. So on some metrics they are good, other metrics they're not mm-hmm. so good. But overall, average. So you'd think that with the system that we have, with the verifications that are possible with third parties, that it would be fairly easy or easy-ish to collect money. And that so CRA would be excellent. But no, it's not. And I've worked at CRA. I have a couple of ideas as to where mm-hmm. improvements could be made. And we have another tax agency that CRA can compare itself to, Revenue Quebec, which are... I think much more aggressive in going after uh, tax evaders, but I can tell you from having been inside, CRE hates to compare itself to Revenue Quebec because they don't like the comparison. It's not always flattering. In some areas, it is flattering, but in some other areas, it's not as flattering. So they don't like the comparison. It's something you can do, 
avoid comparing yourself when you're a monopoly. But when you have another tax agency that's doing good, mm -hmm. you don't want the comparison. Yeah. Well, and I'll come back to spending for a second because, I mean, that's where the Parliamentary Budget Office is so essential to we get told something and then we find out from the Parliamentary Budget Office research, oh, well, this is what actually has happened. I'll give you an example because it's recent from your reports. But come on, the federal – the easiest thing the government themselves talks about. It's not someone in the opposition or someone who doesn't like the government saying you should do X. I mean, I'll give you an example. We were supposed to spend less on consultants. In the government that's their thing they said we're going to spend less on consultants the other one is we're going to spend less on travel i've got an example of how that's not happening but we're going to spend less on consultants and then presto parliamentary budget office has a look and says oh guess what we're 60 16 percent higher on consultants than last year's record yeah so it's based on the estimates so that's the process the bills through which the government finances itself and based on the estimates to date uh, spending on consultancies and special services, so consultants and outside assistance, um, it's going up. It doesn't. That's the authority. So that's how much they'll have authority to spend. It doesn't mean they will spend all of it. They could mm -hmm. leave some on the table, but departments have the authority to spend a little bit more than last year. So if the government is indeed serious about reducing the use of consultants, they should have, one would have expected to use, to decrease the authority to ensure that this mm -hmm. is binding. But they are giving permission for departments to spend slightly more than last year. Maybe there'll be admin issues and departments will end up not spending as much as they did last year, resulting in a real decrease. But what we are seeing is they have authority, authorization, to spend slightly more than last year. So they're telling us we will reduce spending, but they're granting permission to spend a little bit more than, than last year. So we have to trust them. We'll know once the year is over, probably next fall, once they, mm -hmm. they table the public accounts. So we can talk again in a year, and then we will have found out whether they spent less on consultants or not. But so far, all the signs are there uh, ramping up to spend probably close to or as much as last year. I, I can't help but my favorite example is they, uh, thanks uh, to the work you've done, they paid 670000 that ballpark, to consultants for advice on how to save money on consultants. <clears throat> I didn't think that was a particularly strong plan. But <laughs> well, I, can't claim, I, can't, I cannot claim credit for this one. I think it's the media who uncovered it. Oh, this. okay. It, it's well, not me. So when I saw the headline, I couldn't help myself but I yeah shaking my head there's probably somebody who didn't read the memo but hey it happens it doesn't get better than that though 607 well I mean it's not that dissimilar to their promise to cut travel and then just this week we got the report that in September the prime minister and I think it was four photographers and other people the big entourage went to speak at a climate conference and again uh, I'm not asking you to comment on why they were doing or what they're doing it, but I think it's tough to cut back on travel expenses when that kind of thing's happening. And I don't, I haven't seen any sign that there's been a cutback as promised. Um, me neither, but again, we'll see in a couple of months if mm -hmm. things have happened. Uh, I've commented tongue-in-cheek a couple of months ago that if all the exercises over the years and decades that promised to decrease spending if all had been true, 
um, the Ottawa airport would be much, much smaller than it currently is. <laughs> yeah, as we say. But it, it's the kind of thing that, I mean, this is what Canadians want to know. They just, I don't think it's much to ask. Hey, I work hard for my money. I pay my taxes. What is it getting spent on? How effectively it is? And, and I want to come to one more thing before I ask you about your outlook as you look forward to what you're expecting from the economy and to interest rates because you have an interesting call on when you think interest rates will finally decline. But just one more, you know, when I, when I look at that and I just, as I say, I'm trying to chronicle the, the commitment to this and I'm not seeing it at this point uh, with it. And I, I guess I'm just asking, uh, you know, is, are you thinking that things are improving in terms of effective, efficient uh, spending, especially when I think of these monster outlays like we did with the subsidy for Stellantis, uh, for Volkswagen, for the EV plant, amidst an avalanche of news reports that EVs aren't selling, uh, whether it's from the dealers, uh, that in fact the manufacturers are cutting back, which obviously would cut back on the demand. But uh, you know, your report came out and, and described it was a little more expensive than what the government had suggested. Yeah, well, on, on this issue, uh, I've been accused of being against electric vehicles or ignoring the economics of electric mm -hmm. vehicles. And, and that's not what our report did. Our report just looked at the, uh, the statement that some government ministers made that the spending on Volkswagen, that was the initial one, the spending on Volkswagen, government spending, would pay for itself in less than five years. And that was $15 billion or close to at the time in, in April. So we thought that's a bit fishy. So we, we, we looked at what the government itself had used to make that statement and we debunked that. And we found that it's more like 20 years in the best case scenario. Well, I shouldn't say in the best case scenario, on an optimistic scenario. Mm -hmm. Uh, where the production at the facility would continue at the maximum pace for these 20 years, which is, is hard to believe will happen. They often have to down tool and, and upgrade uh, plants of that nature. So, and, and we just debunked that statement. And then the government, the federal and provincial government of Quebec, when they announced subsidies for the North Volt plant, they used our methodology. So, Mm. It suggests that we probably did something right when we said for Volkswagen, nah, it's not going to be five years or less. It's going to be more like 20. So they decided to take the same methodology as we use for the North Volt. So I think we, we did something right there for governments, both of Quebec and the federal, to use our methodology. So I think it's useful for governments to have an independent oh. officer of parliament to keep them honest when they become probably a bit too enthusiastic. Yeah. And your point about uh, government spending and efficiency, uh, I think it's in government dollars as in many other things. The more you, you feel you have, probably the more um, inclined you are to spend it. It's a bit like if you buy in bulk at Costco, you have these big bag of chips. It's much easier to eat lots of chips than if you have a small bag. I, I think the same analogy is probably true for government spending. If you're in a mood where there's a lot of spending, you're not likely or less likely to be very, very careful with every penny and ensure that it is spent as efficiently as possible because there is more of it that gets spent. On the uh, Conversely, if you have 
very, very few resources, you want to maximize the mm-hmm. use of each and every single one of these dollars. But when you are spending more, it's more difficult to, to do that. And it's probably easier to lose track of the necessity to spend very, very wisely. Well, I, I don't want to jump into the political pool on that, but there is a real challenge for government to spend effectively. Uh, again, uh, we can debate what we should be spending on and how much you know we should be taxing. But I think there's a good case to be made that uh, we haven't got the results that that we want, uh, you know, so far. But let me finish with this uh, quickly. Just the PBOs projected what they think the economy will do. Uh, you know, next year, but especially you have a target for when you think the Bank of Canada may start lowering its interest rates. So we released our economic and fiscal outlook. We do that twice a year to give <laughs> parliamentarians a nonpartisan and, and uh, impartial point of view on the economy and federal finances. And for a couple of months, we've been saying the most likely scenario is not a recession. It's very close, so economic mm-hmm. stagnation, but no recession. So far, uh, we have been proven right. Uh, and when it comes to interest rates, we anticipate in our last outlook that the bank could start decreasing rates in April 2024. So that's what our economic model suggests. That's what the state of the economy so far suggests. It doesn't mean that it's exactly what will happen. But we think that economic conditions will probably warrant uh, rate decreases mm-hmm. by April. Will the bank do that? That's anybody's guess. If I knew how to perfectly predict the state of the economy, I would be much, much richer than I am. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, though, looking at your reports and uh, and God bless them all at the federal uh, sorry, at uh, the Bank of Canada. But your reports have been stronger in, in those kinds of things. And uh, I'm not trying to nail Tiff Macklin. He's a wonderful guy, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, uh, I'm just saying you, you should pat your guys on the back a little bit, your men and women who are working with you, because they've actually had a good track record. And that's why I sound, found it so interesting, your uh, your economic forecast, uh, you know, projecting a weaker economy, nothing to write home about, but allowing the Bank of Canada to lower rates by April 224. I got a lot of Canadians who are hoping you're right. But you've been right on a lot of stuff from the Parliamentary Budget Office. And I want to thank you for your work there. As I say, our best friend is taxpayers. All we want is the straight goods. You know, and I really believe in people's uh, right to make a choice in terms of policy. You know, I want my money spent X. She, uh, She says Y. I really respect that. What I think is troublesome when the Canadian public isn't getting the facts, isn't and getting all the information, and you fill a, a very important void there. And thank you very much. And I'm I'm all for that too. And I don't I'm I don't pronounce on the merit mm-hmm. of specific policies, environment, economic, and so on. Uh, politicians get elected because they have a broader perspective than mere economists like me. And I've said that often. Uh, I'm not in position to make decisions. Mm-hmm. That's why we elected people so that they can take the public's mood, take the fearless advice of the public servants, but also take into consideration the public opinion and public mood, which I'm not, I'm not equipped yes. to do that. So, but at least they should be honest and provide us with true information yes well i look forward to your next report and i want to say thank you and uh, merry christmas to you and your family much appreciated hope we can visit again in the new year Uh, i hope so too and uh, happy holidays and merry christmas to you too thank you 
Time now for the quote of the week. Well, if you're a regular listener, you know the overriding analytical framework I use is to follow the decline in confidence in government and the establishment. And polls show that it's a steady decline. Most of us would be hard-pressed to think of an area from what well, we could talk housing, which we will with Aussie coming up, uh, health care, uh, prudent management of uh, public finances. You can't name something where trust in government is actually on the rise. That also plays into arguably the biggest political divide. Those that support the security state, obviously run by government, and the accompanying restrictions on individual freedom, which we certainly saw during COVID, and those that don't. Which brings me to the quote of the week, which deals with the ever-increasing desire of government to monitor and some say ultimately control our behavior, which, as I said, COVID illustrated. Some support it, while others vehemently oppose it, especially moves to adopt a digital currency and mandated identity, which a digital identity, which will give the government the ability to monitor what we're doing. So this coming week, a lot of people haven't, don't know this, this coming week, the European Union is going to take another step in that direction when the EU Parliament's Committee on Industry, Research and Energy is going to hold a final vote this coming, I think it's Thursday, on mandatory digital identifiers. In this week's quote of the week, Natalie Smolensky, Senior Fellow at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, Executive Director at the Texas Bitcoin Institute, explains in quotes, the EU Council just formulated new regulations requiring persistent digital identifiers for every person and banning advanced encryption to protect those identifiers. The regulations all also allow members, member states to further require that these identifiers be unique to each person. These persistent, unique identifiers will be used in the EU digital wallet, which the EU Commission has mandated every member state has to provide by, well, this coming year, 224. Regulations will require EU governments and companies doing business in the EU to create massive honeypots of data about every person touching their services. Moreover, the regulations require web browsers to trust state-issued certificate authorities, even if they are known to be unsafe. The fascist and communist governments of the 20th century Europe could only have dreamed about these levels of surveillance and control. End of quote. Has me thinking we can mark this down as another conspiracy theory that actually has come true. Well, lots of buzz about gold these days, of course. Why? Because, again, it starts poking up above that 2,000. There's no shortage of people who will tell me that's the greatest bull market in history five minutes away. They've got all sorts of reasons that we continue to hear. But I'm going to talk with Rob Levy because he's there on the ground besides being analytical about it. But he's also on the ground because he runs Border Gold. Rob, first of all, appreciate you finding time. Oh, it's always nice to be with you. Thank you for having me, Mike. Well, let's talk about, and let me just, you know, quickly go down to the ground floor with you because I can't get this from other people. Tell me what they're talking about when they come in, because I know you guys, by talking to your staff, you guys have been really busy, and that happens when gold starts moving, but you've been really busy. But what are they talking about? It's the fact that gold is back to near, what are we, six months, uh, highest level in six months. Uh, so people see this as an opportunity to raise a little cash in, in this environment. It, it's funny in our business how we're either selling and we can't get the product or we're either buying it back. It's very rare that we're balanced between buying metal from customers and selling metals to customers. And in this type of environment with retail customers, it seems that it's pretty heavily tilted towards people cashing in as they see gold go 
you know, to this near six month high in U.S. dollars, but you know, other currencies, uh, maybe a different story. Well, it's also interesting. Come on. I mean, I think one of the biggest stories of the last couple of years is life is becoming unaffordable. And that, I still think that gets ignored. The degree to which for over half the population, it's literally unaffordable. You know, I, I, I'm fortunate enough to get to moan about higher prices, to get to moan about, gee, I went to the grocery store and, you know, and your dad was, uh, you know, Michael Levy was telling us a while ago about how he just was blown away by the price of grapes one day. So we do talk about it, but let's remember who really gets nailed when we talk about that. And I, I can see somebody sitting there and they've got some gold they might want to cash in and they've got a reason, you know, they yeah. got an extra mortgage payment or not an extra higher mortgage payments. Uh, that kind of thing. So I, I'm, I'm not surprised there's got to be some stampeding toward that good price and big need. Exactly right, Mike. And I, just to hit you with a little stat before you shift into it, but it was that Bloomberg data the other day. In the last three years, you've had the same equivalent increase in the price level as you had in the preceding decade before that. So people, it's top of mind right now, how much more you're paying at the grocery store. Uh, insurance still blows me away when you renew your car insurance or you're renewing your home insurance. It's just everywhere. So uh, for people to min- uh, manage their financial situation and they have an asset class or part of their portfolio that's performed. So to take a little cash off the table and maybe pay down a little debt because you can you know, not have to worry about refinancing that whole tranche of your mortgage at a higher interest rate. Uh, yeah, there's probably a fiscal responsibility, financial responsibility story that's going with it. Yeah. As I say, we're only guessing at that because people don't have to say why they're selling. Or, But the other thing, just to make sure people are clear, you also would accept someone, let's say I've got a gold ring or something. I've got materials made of gold. I can also come to you, can't I? Gold is gold. Gold is gold. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, there's never a rush to sell that kind of stuff because you're invested in gold. That's why I always tell people that want to trade a gold ring for a gold coin. Why pay the transaction costs? You're holding gold anyway. Yeah, no. Interesting point. Well, the other thing is you get at this time, and again, it happens with every market, but gold's certainly not the exception. And people seem to have a great interest in gold, especially when it starts moving. And it can, you can ride the hobby horse in a variety of ways. Like, Government's printing so much money, gold's got to go up. Um, Geopolitical tensions, my gosh, you know, gold's got to go up. Do you notice correlations like that on the ground level? I mean, when big events happen, all of a sudden, you know, they come in? We do, but sometimes you almost see this uh, converse relationship between what happens, say, in the institutional market and what happens in the retail market. Because Obviously, for gold to go up to these levels like we've seen, you know, over the past two months, you got a 12% gain in U.S. dollars in the price of gold. And Canadian dollars, I think it's around 10.5% because the loonies appreciated a little bit against the U.S. dollar. And, you know, obviously that means there's some buyers that are coming into this market for whatever reason. you got the geopolitical tension stories out of the Middle East, uh, the fact that the Fed could finally be done raising interest rates and now greater odds of how much they cut by next year. I mean, that's all fueling the gold market right now. Uh, but what we see at the retail level is people taking that opportunity to sell. There's certainly more where we see it, more sellers than buyers. But obviously in this marketplace to go higher, it, it's some big money, institutional money that seems to be driving this market higher. I'm glad you mentioned the U.S. dollar. One of the things I always like to do is remind people if they're saying, when is the bull market going to break out? And I go, it's broken out in about 160 countries. You know, the U.S. dollar is the strongest currency out there, you know, virtually, uh, you know, that's not manipulated. Uh, So we can go right through South America, Africa, you know, Middle East. Gold's already in that bull market. 
you know, it's already broken to new highs. And I think that's an incredibly key point because one of gold's strengths, of course, it's international. You know, I can, if I can take my ounce of gold and then I can travel, you know, I can go to the COP meetings for goodness sakes, you know, in Doha, I can go down to South Africa, I can go, you know, into Vietnam. Gold is gold, as you said, and I can trade it. So the international uh, prices are very important for gold. Yeah, well, yeah, I just have to say, you're only allowed to go to the COP meetings if you fly there on a private jet, Mike. But yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> but it, you're absolutely right. And in Canada, that's actually what we've seen. You know, with gold trading around that twenty-seven fifty level, two thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars an ounce Canadian, it, it does, in a sense, it can protect your purchasing power in your domestic economy just as well. You're not just trading a U.S. dollar-based asset. So, it, you know, even the fact, and this to me is the big one for gold over the past half year. 18 months even go back and you've talked about the fact that the U.S. Federal Reserve has raised interest rates and you've seen gold hold at these levels. I mean, that normally would put downward pressure on precious metals, but you know, it tells a story about gold's role in this sort of new economy, new world uh, that we're seeing this sort of decade. Yeah, so so linked to, you know, the uh, the lack of purchasing power in paper currencies, and it is linked to the huge uh, printing of those currencies, creation of those currencies, all of it playing out. But that's why I also, let me just finish with this, Rob. You and uh, Mike Levy are going to be hosting a webinar coming up and talking about physical precious metals, you know, uh, whether we're talking coins or wafers, ingot, bar, differences, all of those kind of things. I, I think that's a terrific idea in this kind of environment, but you're doing it uh, Tuesday. Uh, December 5th, that is, at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I just want to, it's a free webinar if you sign up early. Why? Because there's, by the nature of that technology, at least the ones we use, uh, there's limited seating, limited availability, but you just have to go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and you can register, mikesmoneytalks.ca and register for it because, gosh, talk about timely. But there's so many questions I always get, Rob. Should I buy gold shares, gold mining, or, you know, gold mining ETFs? Should I be going coins, wafers, you know, maple leafs also within that? Lots of questions around that so I, I think that's a terrific idea that you're doing it no oh, appreciate it. appreciate the opportunity to do it and the idea i think is to have some fun with it too so you yeah. know show a little product what people are buying what motivates them to buy how you do the transaction where you yeah. can store it all those kind of sort of finer details uh, a chance to talk about them a little uh, bit i'm glad you're talking sorry I'm, I'm glad you're talking about how to do it because i mean i know for anyone experienced well what do you mean you're asking me that but if people haven't done it you know, it's a very simple procedure, but it's nice to make them, uh, you know, uh, made it available to them that way. So I'm glad you're doing that. But the other thing, let me throw a thank you before you leave me. Um, we've worked with Border Gold, and they're going to donate a one-ounce maple leaf worth over $12 trillion in the future. But right now, about 2700 2800 Canadian. <laughs> Depending on your outlook on purchasing power, well, right now, it's got to be worth, what, Zimbabwe? I mean, what's it worth? Venezuela, Turkey, those kind of places. It is worth those kind of numbers. But yeah, so I want people to go to the World Outlook Conference. Uh, you know, you'll be there to answer questions too, Rob. Um, World Outlook Conference, obviously, February 2nd and 3rd. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. Get your ticket. But you're automatically entered in the draw for a one-ounce gold maple leaf. I love it. I'm going to buy 12 tickets right away. Okay, Rob. Thanks for taking time. Much appreciated, eh? Appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Nice to be with you. 
Time now for the shocking stat of the week. I know it's another one of my things we talk about, but the lack of accountability when it comes to government spending, well, really, it's profound. Incompetence, along with highly questionable dealings that merit investigation, are common, yet there seems to be no accountability. Personally, I can always think back to the most egregious example of incompetence, which former Auditor General Michael Ferguson called unfathomable, and it came with the Phoenix pay system, which we got word this week that it's going to cost taxpayers about $3.5 billion. But my point, those in charge, right at the beginning of this and pushing that project through, they received bonuses when it was a disaster. And I think we're getting another shocking stat, uh, example rather of the lack of accountability with the government stonewalling over the $54 million ArriveCan app which the consulted consumer experts said should have cost much more close to 250000 not $54 million. And just one aspect being investigated, just to remind you that the government's really working hard to stonewall, is to look into the $8.9 million ArriveCan contract awarded without tender to GC Strategies of Woodlawn, Ontario. That's a two-man company operating from a private home. Evidence shows that the company pocketed an undisclosed commission worth, well, as much as $2.7 million for doing nothing other than doling out the work to subcontractors. As I said, that's just one example. But here's the shocking stat. At Blacklock's reporter notes, so far no official with Canada Border Services has admitted to awarding that sole source contract. And this assault on taxpayers continued this week when Public Works Minister Jean-Yves Duclos appeared before the committee and refused to give the name of who specifically was in charge of awarding that contract. Come on, you'd think it's a person. He's ultimately in charge. You know, he'd want to know, given the embarrassment that ArriveCan debacle has caused his government, his own department, and the millions it's cost taxpayers. But no, he wouldn't even say if he was asked, if he asked about it. But here's the shocking part. He was asked 32 separate times to give a straight answer, who rewarded the contract, and he refused. 32 times. Come on, the contempt for the Canadian taxpayer is palpable. Obviously, but wasting my tax dollars, or worse, paying off friends or insider, upsets me. I know that. The question is, though, does it upset you? Because if it doesn't, well, you're part of the problem, and it will continue. There's so much to talk about. I mean, one of the interesting subjects or important subjects has been gaining momentum, and that's the housing industry, the shortage of, of housing availability, affordability, of, of shortage of rents, affordable rents. The list is a long one, and governments have had their fingerprints all over it. That's why I want to bring Ozzy Jurek in. You know, Ozzy, one of the things that's interesting is every jurisdiction in the, with major urban centers is dealing with this. So uh, whether it's municipal politicians, uh, provincial even federal weighing in, and they're all watching each other. And there's something going on out in British Columbia that I think people better have a long look at, and that's increasing neighborhood density. I guess, you know, I'll put it this way, like the government coming in, overstepping from the municipal and saying, you know what, everyone can put a fourplex or even a sixplex on their property. Talk about changing a neighborhood. That's well, not only that. Uh, Bill 47 that just came in, would effectively double the density allowed in transit-oriented areas, and that removes height restrictions, etc. Now, the bill is not yet designated, but it would give the lieutenant governor authority to designate bus stops, bus exchanges, passenger trains, transit facilities, 
from Victoria to Vernon and north to Fort St. John, all these cities would be impacted. And we don't know what power we're actually transferring. Now, the whole thing about politics versus facts, you know, it drives me crazy. You know, Ronald Reagan says the most scary words in the world to citizens are, hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. You know, it seems like our government is trying to help. And our last line of the time colonists said, after outlawing single-family home zoning, Given blanket approvals for up to six units on most lots, pre-zoning transit corridors for big condo towers, and paving the way for instant approvals of nearly everything, the actual government analysts expect 4,500 fewer housing starts next year rather than more. I mean, sorry, it's hard not to laugh when you see that. But I'm going to reiterate that because, as I say, I know this is being watched in Ontario, Toronto, Hamilton, those kind of regions. And look, so they've outlawed single family home zoning, you know, given blanket approvals for up to six units, you know, four to six units, pre-zoning transit corridors, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, trying to get instant approvals. And what's the result? Oh, 45 fewer housing starts. I mean, yeah, these are not going to be solutions for the long term. And I mean, they're also projecting, and I saw, you know, the Green Party questioning this. They're also uh, projecting, what, 130,000 new homes in the decade? Well, that is sort of the crazy thing. I mean, I, listen, I'm actually for government taking some strong action. And on the face of it, it seems like strong action. I may not agree with it, but at least they seem to do something. But you wonder when the government says we're going to have 130,000 new units because of our initiatives, and then the government, again, only these are the, the civil servants, are saying, no, actually, we are seeing the number of building permits have dropped between 20 and 13 percent. And we're going to project 47,400 units this year and next year 42,900. So what gives? So when Olson asked the housing minister whether they had any modeling or whether they had any backup, the housing minister, Mr. Carlon, said, well, it will be released soon. But he's... Olson then pointed out that the legislature will be voting on it now. And what happened to Venice soon? Well, it says not to worry about it. So he asked the housing minister and she says, I have a feeling it's not quite as bad as that. <laughs> well, that, by the way, that's Green Party MLA Adam Olson who asked those questions. And it's a very, you know, why wouldn't we be asking that every time? Oh, you think that's going to happen? Give me your research. That's as simple as that. But that's not happening. And it's and this is one of the real problems with the housing market. We've been unrealistic here. Uh, you know, you wait till you hear my goofy award about unrealistic. It's another subject, though, too. But it's a typical modus operandi here. And, uh, you know, and the other thing I can't help but note, Ozzy, is, did everyone just discover we got a housing problem? I mean, I'm sitting there going, where were you like six, seven years ago? I mean, this is directly related to the population increase being exceeding any ability to meet the infrastructure needs of that. Whether we could talk in healthcare, we could be talking as we are right now, housing, other things. Uh, it, you know, let's not forget how we got there is these unrealistic targets, then throwing it out. Uh, and, the, and just not being prepared. So here we are, six, seven years later, when people are suffering from high rents, but not maybe even be able to find one. To heck with not being able to find affordable housing. That's all of it was predictable. And then we get this. You know what? I think we deserve to hear the research beside behind what you're doing. Well, and that, that's the big problem. The mayor of Penticton was on TV uh, last week, and he, he, he wasn't really a negative, but he said, we have we're not asked. Nobody told us anything. The first thing we know about it when we get it sort of an email, so this is the new laws. And you'd like to know a little bit more about it. And Les Lyon points out, he says, look, 
He says they also claim prices will drop 7 to 14 percent because of all the increased supply. That Now, he says, is there any analysis public? No. Yeah, absolutely is right. I'm glad he's asking those questions, by the way, as we are asking those questions. Yeah, it just seems, and again, not being able to supply the information that your own government produced to create these kind of things, it leads me to think they don't have the information. There's no reason not to have re- uh, released it. In fact, it would raise the level of discussion uh, when we can at least have a look at that and people in the industry can have a look at that. And this is a problem that we're seeing across the country and certainly seeing at the federal level too. It's not research-based. It's uh, So much of it is polling-based. Oh, you mean housing's important? Oh, we've got something to do here. You know, it's just, as I say, you can tell I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, and if you are, of course, cynical, you might think that it has to do with an upcoming election or two. Yeah, a- absolutely. Uh, but this is the kind of thing, by the way, that, Ozzy, you follow closely on OzBuzz, and people can get a copy of OzBuzz.ca. Just go there. He, he needs to know where to send it. Put your email address in, and it's absolutely free. That's the best price, absolutely free. But, uh, Ozzy, you can't say when you're coming to speak at the World Outlook Conference, um, I mean, I can't, I'm not going to say how many times you've presented, but I am going to say, have you ever had a more important or better backdrop to you know, make a speech from, giving the information. You don't have to think times are definitely interesting here. Well, and I think uh, 2024 is going to be a very interesting year, and people will be quite surprised as to what I'm going to be forecasting. Well, I'm going to be looking forward to it. I am looking forward to it. I'm going to be enjoying it too. Ozzy, thanks for taking the time. Go out, uh, and I know you've got some big stuff in front of you, like what are you going to buy me for Christmas? Am I going to get (laughs) shut out again? But let's hope not. Ozzy, have a terrific week. Well, while I think about that, I remember that I always cook with wine. I mean, sometimes I even add it to the food. <laughs> Ozzy Jerk, just find him at ozbuzz.ca. Let's go live to the trading desk now. Victor Adair joins me. You know, Vic, it's funny. I was thinking of you because just last week we were talking about how the market was much more enthusiastic than the Federal Reserve. But I want people to be aware, the Federal Reserve may have played a little catch-up to be bullish on the market this week. (laughs) Catch-up is, yeah, that's an understatement. I mean, last week we were talking about the cognitive dissonance, as I called it, where the market was hearing one thing and the Fed seemed to be saying another. Well, the Fed changed their tune this week. I mean, that's all there is to it. And the market loves it uh, in the sense that early in the week we had a former very hawkish governor of the Fed basically saying, you know, I think we're probably done. You know, they, yeah. that, that, in, in plain language, you know, we might do this or that, but, you know. And then at the end of the week, Powell, who has been, I think, resolutely warning people, don't get carried away, folks. Well, he had a chance to push back on what Waller had said, and he didn't take it. So the market's like, holy mackerel, we just yeah. got to get out of jail free card, and we're off to the races on the stocks. Well, and it's been a huge rally, eh? I mean, you know, what is it, five weeks or something? I was reading your blog, and you were saying, okay, we were into week four. He said, that's done. Let's look at week five. Well, five weeks now. Yeah, for, for the number a lot of folks would understand, the Dow is up uh, almost 4,000 points. We're within a hair of making new all-time highs on the Dow. Uh, and, and an interesting thing that's happening in the market. I mean, we've talked previously about how the, the Magnificent Seven, the Mega Cap Tech, mm-hmm. has been leading the rally. It looks like now, at least it feels when I look at the board here, that some of the capital is is moving 
away from that or maybe maybe taking profits there and spreading out into the broader market, whether it's something like Boeing or Caterpillar or even, for instance, I mean, ARC, the, the yeah. collection of uh, no-money-earning no tech stocks, it's up about 40% from where we were at the end of October. But what I wonder about is, you know, obviously a lot of uh, people, a lot of institutions, funds, et cetera, were playing the market to go down and were rewarded. And all of a sudden, maybe they throw in the towel and say, yeah, I don't know. But I, again, just to remind people, the process of getting out of a short position is to buy. So uh, do you think we've seen much of that? I, I mean, I, again, I'm just throwing that out there. We've seen a lot of that. Uh, the bond market, for instance, mid to the end of October was at a 16-year low in terms of prices, a 16-year high in yields. Bond yields were 5% at the, around the mid to late of October. We're now at four and a quarter. That is the biggest one-month move we've seen in bonds almost forever, but I'm exaggerating, but it's been a big, big move in bonds. And whether it's bonds, stocks, gold, whatever, all of these markets have been driven very much here by positioning. I mean, for instance, in, uh, let's say, August, September, and October, the Dow fell 3,000 points. Then it turned on a dime and rallied 4,000 points. So people who are managing other people's money Okay, we're probably being cautious, you know, going into the October bottom. Weren't, let's say they were underweight to use their yes. term. And as the market started racing away to the upside, they had to buy. If they didn't, then the people who are hiring them to manage their money are going to fire them. You know, there's yeah. a career risk. So anyway, we've seen that and we've seen it in spades and I'm not sure it's over. Yeah, but the the point to bring home to people is that people always ask, why is the market going up? And, why? and a, a huge part of that regularly is people changing their positions, you know, from uh, not people as much as it is major institutions. You know, as you just said, they're going, oh, it's not that they've looked at the economic data themselves. They've looked at the market and said, you know what, we better look like we're long when someone reviews our performance this year. So I'm just saying that's a great point that you consistently make, but it's one that's kind of foreign to a lot of people because they want a reason. They want an X. Well, the X is they want to be either in or out of the market when uh, people review their performance. Hey, look, I don't want to run out of time without getting to gold because as you heard earlier, we're giving away who knows how much money because where's gold going? But it's a one ounce gold coin for anyone who books a ticket for the World Outlook Conference in December. I was joking uh, with Rob Levy, you know, you, you can talk about it being worth 2,800 Canadian, but I'd rather talk about it being worth 38,000 South African Rand or nearly uh, 1,900 Euro or 171,000 rupees from India. So, but yeah, we're giving away a dollar, uh, sorry, an ounce, uh, gold coin ounce. Tell us a little bit about gold because it's had a pretty good three weeks too. Well, gold was just within a hair of making a new low for the year in October 5, October 6. And on the, it was a Friday. And the market did make a new low for the day and turned higher on a weaker unemployment number. 
And uh, it, it just seemed like that. And then, of course, over the weekend, we had the Hamas attacks. Mm-hmm. It's run up about $250 from there. And just as I was describing about the stock market here, even more so in gold, the Commodity Trading Advisors, which is a big group in, in, in the futures market, were net short of gold at the end of October because it had been trending lower. That's what they do. As the market goes their way, they put on more and more. Well, they've had to scramble, as have other people, obviously, as well. And gold's had this run up. Mike, I mean, we are uh, at daily, weekly, and monthly all-time high closes here in gold. I think we've had the gold trade a couple of dollars higher, you know, intraday. Mm. But basically, in U.S. dollar terms, we're at all-time highs. And as you know, in terms of other currencies, Katie, bar the door. We're, we're there. We're, we, you know, new all-time highs. But an, an emphasis that, as you say, for someone doing any technical analysis, they're looking at that's a daily close, that's a weekly close, that's a monthly close. You know, right. and here we are coming toward the end of the year. That'll be interesting. But that's the significance. I mean, technical traders or technical investors are, you know, pretty excited about what's been going on. Well, there's been a confluence of bullish news for gold, obviously. Yeah. We had the geopolitical crisis got us going in uh, October. And then as the market began to think this or that, the, the changes that the Fed was making, the Fed was approaching done and maybe would start to cut. And by the way, I should tell you, what the forward markets now in Canada and in the United States are pricing the central banks to have cut rates by at least 50 to 60 points by June and by 120 to 150 points by this time next year. And you heard uh, Ijoul talk about uh, they've been predicting this for a while. That's why it's impressive. Uh, their, their analysis at the Parliamentary Budget Office was April to be the first drop. And as you say, so it's now seeing some confirmation. Uh, The good news is there's going to be no shortage of things to talk about at the World Outlook Conference. I mean, I I can't believe how my screens are lit up, and I can imagine yours because you've got money involved in several. Uh, But my screens are lit up. The news feed's lit up. Man, this is a time. And by the way, uh, I wish I had prepared better for this little part, but I was wondering if Xi Jinping, Joe Biden, and Vladimir Putin were all listening to money talks. You know what? Because this week they all said we're living in a period of historic change. I mean, that's obviously been our theme on money talks right on time, like five years ago. But every one of them said it this week, that we are living in a period of historic change, perfect timing for the world outlook. We want to help protect you. You'll see Victor there, of course. Uh, Hopefully, Michael will be with us. Then Ozzy will definitely be there. But a whole raft of great speakers. I mean, can you hardly wait to hear what big Greg Weldon's going to say? I mean, you know, it's going to be great. Marty Armstrong's going to be there. Uh, Joseph Schachter's going to be there. Uh, The list is a long one. Go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, click on events, have a look. But I hope to see you there. But, man, it couldn't be setting up better, Victor. Well, you're you're awfully lucky, Mike. <laughs> yeah, there you go. No, anyway. it's going to be – I'm really looking forward to it. And, of course, looking forward to hearing what all the guys have to say. Well, you're laughing thinking I sound like an old K-Tail ad out of Winnipeg. And I was about, I was about to offer people a patty packer instead of the one-ounce gold coin. You'll get a patty packer if you sign up. But we look forward to seeing people. It's terrific. Thanks, Vic. Have a great week. Thanks, Mike. Time now for the Goofy Award, COP28. Do I have to say any more? The Climate Fest is underway in Doha. 70,000 people estimated are laying a massive carbon footprint. Virtually every one of them flew to Doha, some in private jets. And I promise I'm not going to be eating at discount counters or staying in two-star hotels. I mean, it's always goofy. 
especially when you consider virtually none of the countries, and that includes Canada, are anywhere close to meeting their Paris Accord promises. Well, that's because in the battle between ideology slash fantasy and physics slash reality, well, reality is undefeated. And part of that reality that's been relentlessly ignored is the cost. So with COP28 convening this week, what better time to ask arguably the most relevant question? While talking all the predictable talk of fighting climate change from fantasy and wishful thinking and moving it into reality, and it's the kind of question, by the way, that drives climate activists and their political allies to destruction, uh, distraction, rather, one that's been avoided at all costs for politicians, including in Canada, where the Environment Commissioner has made it clear, we have no idea as to the cost-benefit of any action, regulation, or policy. I mean, we don't know which ones work, which ones don't, that kind of thing. The one thing that climate activists, again, including politicians, don't do is practical analysis. Practical considerations like the cost or benefit of a specific policy or regulation or government subsidy aren't welcome in the world of grandstanding politicians when it comes to climate. But you're going to end up paying for it, so you better be interested. And that brings me to this week's goofy, courtesy of what I call the practical environmentalist Bjorn Lomberg who in the Wall Street Journal brought to our attention, there's two new studies out examining in a comprehensive way the total cost of keeping the global temperature rise well below 2 degrees Celsius and pursuing the effort to keep it limited to 1.5 degrees. Now, we've all heard about those. One of the papers is authored by economist Richard Toll. Well, he's on the short list of best-known climate economists. Now, I'm not going to go into all the detail here. Instead, I think I'm going to post the links uh, to his study, and, and the other one I'll mention in a moment, on mikesmoneytalks.ca and our social media, Money Talks Tweets and Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook. I'll put it up there. But the bottom line is that if global temperatures were kept below 1.5 degree rise, it would prevent less than half a percent in economic losses annually by 2050. 3.1% loss by 2021. That's it. Well, what about the cost? That's the benefit. What about the cost? Well, based on the latest cost estimate of emission reductions from the United Nations Climate Panel, Mr. Toll finds that fully delivering on the 1.5 degree promise will cost nine times more than the benefit. 4.5% of global GDP every year decline by 250, 5.5% annually by 2100. And that's with governments implementing policies at the lowest possible cost. That sounds like a pipe dream when you study how much they've done now, how they waste the money. Well, the other study, though, looks at the cost benefit is from five economists at MIT. The cost of holding the temperatures rise below 1.5 degrees, as well as that of achieving net zero globally by 250, the researchers find that these Paris policies would cost 8 to 18% of annual GDP by 2050, 11 to 13% annually by 2100. I mean, translating that into numbers, the economic benefit of reaching the Paris climate promises would be saving 4.5 trillion annually, that's in 2023 dollars, in terms of preventing damage from climate change, but the cost would be 27 trillion. Come on, 27 trillion costs for a 4.5 you know, trillion benefit? Are you kidding me? In other words, each dollar spent would avoid less than 17 cents of climate damage while dramatically reducing our standard of living. As Bjorn Logberg concludes, 
current climate policy would end up destroying a sizable fraction of our future prosperity. Hey, maybe that's why politicians and their climate supporters don't want to talk about it, don't want to do the numbers. But of course, as I said up front, this is what's going to cost us. It's about time we had a realistic discussion. Hey, that's all the time we have this week. Hey, I want to remind you, of course, uh, I just talked about this with Rob Levy earlier. We got the big contest. Sign up, get yourself on board for the World Outlook Conference, and we're doing a draw for a one-ounce gold coin. By the way, that's pure economics, as I mentioned. This is incentives, but we want you to be there and join us at the World Outlook Conference. Uh, Every year, it just continues to build with the number of challenges that individuals face. I think it should be obvious by now the challenges that are are befalling you, but the government is not going to bail you out of this. They're going to be the problem as we go, given the sovereign debt. I can go on and on, as you probably know. I can go on and on. I just want to remind you, though, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. You can sign up for of course, the World Outlook Conference. Just click on events. And again, you'll be in that draw for the one ounce gold coin. In the meantime, join me on uh, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, Money Talks Tweets, or mikesmoneytalks.ca. And I keep saying to people, you've got to go there. It gives me a chance to give you so much more information that you can just factor and reach your own conclusions about, but you need to have them. In the meantime, I hope you go out and have an absolutely terrific week. 